Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Well, I think as most of you know, I got involved in politics or got involved in political action back in 2010. Maybe you didn't know, but I'll tell you now. Uh, I was involved early on with the Tea Party and was very concerned about the direction of the country, and uh, that was then. And let's fast forward to now. Uh, and by the way, I should mention, I've got a couple people in the show with me who were into this far before I was and have a lot more knowledge about how, how things were back then and how things are now. But let's talk about today. Uh, critical race theory, vaccine mandates, uh, a $5 trillion reconciliation bill, uh, close to $30 trillion in, in federal debt, uh, growing uh, and, and really oppressive social media censorship on all our critical issues. Uh, we have an Attorney General, Merrick Garland, who has essentially ordered the FBI to surveil and, uh, and suppress parents who want have the audacity to ask school boards and schools to teach what they think ought to be taught. Um, we're in an upside-down world right now, and, and I brought a couple of friends on to talk because we talk about this anyway, and I thought we'd want to share the conversation with you. And joining me is, is Mark Meckler, uh, co-founder of the Tea Party and uh, longtime uh, involved citizen. Uh, he co-founded with uh, Eric O'Keefe, my other guest, uh, the Citizens for Self-Governance. Uh, Mark, along the way, uh, I guess for a while you were CEO of Parler. Yeah, somehow I stumbled into that hot mess we'll, as well. We'll talk about that. <laughs> and, and Eric really had his life on the line. He was involved in the Joe Do John Doe issue in Wisconsin, where I think early on we saw the kind of um, rough tactics that the government would use to suppress uh, dissenting opinion. So you've got, I think, some stories from that. Uh, yes. Yes. More than I would like to have. <laughs> okay, well, we'll, we'll dig. Uh, so, Mark, why don't we, you know, where are we? I mean, what... what I, I teed this up with 2010. We didn't yeah. know each other back then, but we had the same concerns. They were largely fiscal. Correct. And now I think we're seeing a lot more invasive uh, uh, concerns, uh, threats to our liberty. Yeah, I would say uh, we're nowhere where I thought we were going to be. If I look back, my, my political life actually just begins with my first vote. When I was 18 years old, I voted for Ronald Reagan. And so this is how I come up, and it's kind of a rose-colored glasses way of coming up, right? I vote for this inspiring conservative guy who paints this incredible vision, the shining city on the hill. Reagan wins. Uh, we end up with uh, the Berlin Wall falls. Communism is dead. It's relegated to the ash heap of history. And from my perspective as a young up-and-coming conservative, that fight was over. I never expected we would get to where we are today. You fast forward to 2010, it was... There was a lot of fiscal concerns or concerns about our government exceeding its bounds, but nothing like we have today, not the oppressive censorship, not the idea of the IRS or the FBI investigating its own citizens to suppress speech and dissent. None of that stuff was even really on the horizon at the time. We were just worried about, you know, Obamacare and, and things getting out of control in the country fiscally primarily. So we were fighting for limited constitutional government, free markets, uh, and, and basically just for the capitalist system at large. I never expected in my wildest dreams, if I could have gone as dark as I could have imagined, I didn't imagine we'd be where we are today. And I would describe where we're at today as uh, Mark Levin wrote a book by this title, I think we live under American Marxism. And I don't, that's not hyperbole. I actually think we're living inside of a Marxist system. It's not Marxism in the same way you might've seen in the Soviet Union or Maoist communism like you see in China, it's its own version. It is American Marxism. So I think that's the burden under which we labor at the current time. So Eric, you've been, in, you've been involved in this in, in Wisconsin for almost four, over four decades. And uh, you headed up U.S. term limits back in the 90s. We can talk about whether that, you know, it was probably a good idea then. It may not be something we think is our best, our best line of action, but you're also an historian. I mean, how do we how do we think about this? I mean, we had a populist movement growing in, in, in 2010, and we've had them in the past, but now we've got something else growing. 
And it, 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 where do you see us going? Where are we now? Where do you see it going? Well, like Mark, I, I've been shocked and appalled by the last five years. So, uh, you know, studying the past doesn't give me a, a crystal ball at all. It's amazing the aggressiveness of the woke left and their contempt for Americans. And uh, that's what they, they hold us in contempt. Uh, one of the my, my favorite contemporary writer about American history is Gordon S. Wood. And Gordon Wood emphasized that one of the drivers of the uh, American Revolution was the contempt that London held for Americans, even the successful Americans. They were held in contempt. And there were other things going on, but the, the colonies were... Contempt the, from, from London. From London. Okay. So the London elite, the governors, those ruling and those advising the king and the king held Americans in contempt. They were just viewed as inferiors. Um, and uh, so in America, we had... The, our predecessors here had the freest and most prosperous area in the world. And yet, when Britain threatened, through the Declaratory Acts, threatened their liberty that they treasured, they were defiant. They were defiant. But I think the biggest lesson out of, uh, out of history is, uh, well, the, out, out of our American history is, the leading famous founders responded to the citizens at home. And literally, the people in Philadelphia who voted for the Declaration of Independence were more concerned about the patriots at home who were pushing them than about the threat of the gallows of the British. They, they, were, they were being pushed toward independence by a broad, well-organized grassroots effort. And that needs to be recreated. So, and they engaged locally to affect the developing country. So there are there are strong parallels, um, and the and that that successful revolution was as Longfellow wrote was born out of defiance, not of fear. So we still have way over a hundred million Americans who are independent, self-reliant, have a sense of our history, and will not be ruled. We will not be directed. We won't be turned into serfs. You know, I want to add another piece of context from American history that I think is important in a so kind of a stunning parallel. Uh, Eric and I are both students of Pauline Meyer, um, one of the best modern historians of the American Revolution. She was a professor at MIT. Uh, and Bernard Balin is another one. And, and these are folks who, Balin's still alive, but I don't think he's writing anymore. We met with Meyer a few years before her death, or untimely death, a couple of years ago. And I started, so I started reading a lot of the original stuff, like not, not looking through the lens of history, because normally when we read history, there's all kinds of layers of filters of history that go over it. And so Pauline Meyer, she was just she, a total originalist. All she did was look at the original documents to determine her view of history. And she read all the pamphleteers. And so this is the main way that political discourse took place. Right? There was no YouTube or Facebook or anything like that. And so really people would print these pamphlets and they would be circulated wi widely in the colonies and also in the mother country. And there's a phrase that keeps coming up from the pamphleteers over and over, and the phrase is something like, uh, Great Britain has the finest form of government ever created among men for the preservation of liberty. Now, this is written by people who are fomenting a revolution, right? So they're talking about the, the British system of government. They're saying the best ever designed, which is extraordinary for people who seem to hate the system so much they want to overthrow it. But what follows that is the important phrase. They say, the branches of government, however, are now conspiring together against the people. And I think this is where we are today in America. It's not our system. We don't look at the Constitution and think it's bad. We say that the branches are conspiring against the people. I bought Mark's book. I'm Mark's book. I want to read Mark's book. But I think a lot of it's based on the notion of cultural Marxism. And this is a guy, there's an Italian theorist, Gramsci. Yeah, yep. I think I pronounced that That right. is correct, yeah, Gramsci. Anyway, he was writing in the 20s and 30s about, they discovered that even the revolution in Moscow, Russia, wasn't really about the masses overthrowing the, the class. It was really about a very aggressive guy named Lenin, yes. who came in and with about a thousand people took control of a crumbling uh, Russian uh, aristocracy. But it didn't fit the Marxist playbook. And so what Gramsci figured out was it was not going to happen like that. We need to get control of the cultural institutions. Correct. The long march through the institutions. That was Gramsci. That's Gramsci. That's the phrase? Yeah. yeah. Well, K-12, colleges, um, 
now are big corporations. Yeah. Hollywood. Um, now the military. The military. And so... Churches, too, to some extent, religious organizations. Well, all, all, all the Presbyterian churches, the Pope. By the way, off camera, we have... Uh, the smartest person We have editorial content. We have the smartest <laughs> people in the room. My wife, Sarah, is going to... She actually gives me all my good stuff, if there, if there is anything. <laughs> you know, I think it's great that you went to Gramsci. This is really important, and more and more people are understanding who he was. He was imprisoned by the, by the Mussolini government, and when they threw him in prison, they probably should have executed him. They understood how dangerous he was, and that's why we, they put him in prison. But that's where he wrote his notebooks, which laid out all the theories that you're talking about which turned into this long march through the institutions. He had this time and this energy to write these books. And what his frustration was, was that the masses didn't take up Marxism. That, you know, people were struggling to get people to buy into Marxism. If you're doing well and you live in a society that's relatively prosperous, if you can climb the economic ladder, why buy Marxism? And so that's when they realized they had to affect all facets of culture that you, it was not enough to be dominant just in the political sphere. Well, you're too young, but in 68, we had Danny the Red in France and all these uprisings. And, and uh, again, uh, uh, you know, we had Columbia uprisings, student risings right. here. And they all went onto the streets and they expected all the proletariat to join them. And one of them finally said, well, you know, they don't, they don't get it. All they want are more washing machines and cars and vacations. They don't get the, uh, yeah. the struggle. <laughs> <laughs> and and they're right. They don't get it because all they wanted was more washing machines and cars, and they were getting them, and their lives were pretty good. It's hard to have a Marxist uprising when, under the capitalist system, you're doing pretty well. It, you know, we have a very mobile society from a class perspective, so it's hard to get lower classes to hate the upper classes when they want to be part of the upper classes. Well, it's hard to, this long marks through the institutions. I guess these institutions include the Ivy League schools. Correct. And you get a guy like Merrick Garland. Who, who... Yeah, well, the, the, those, the leaders of the protests in 68 was a pivotal year. A lot of them went into academia, and they did not change their ideology. They changed their approach. And one of them, Bill Ayers, you know, became, became an education educator, uh, educating people on how to, what I would call, subvert the education system so it undermines our society. So hundreds of them, smart, young revolutionaries of 1968, shaped a lot of what we're suffering from now through these years, the universities especially, but universities and media. They never changed their views. They watched the, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union and all the proof of the evils under uh, Soviet Union and China, and didn't change their advocacy for, for Marxism. So we have we have it. We have this um, it, this American Marxism, as Marx said, and they are in the high on the high posts in society and government. They're in much of the permanent government. You know, we just had a CIA director who voted for a Marxist candidate for president and was a, just a lefty and heading the CIA. And then turning the powers of that against the elected president of the United States, it's uh, it's almost unbelievable. But uh, but it's it's um, and here, here's here's a negative and a positive. The progressive left has been at this since before Gramsci, really. In the United States, yeah. it's over a hundred years. Woodrow Wilson and others over a hundred years of a progressive march. It's always been anti-constitution. Well, John Dewey. Yeah, yeah. Dewey in education and other socialists. So they have 100 years of a focused march to undo America, while our, our, the Americans were busy making the greatest country in the world and the greatest economy in the world, and not in a political war with them. One side, 100 years. 100 year head start. That's why we have a problem. The fact that we're even in it and that we have so many people who have an understanding of America is great. It's amazing because we don't have the institutions, and yet look at where we're, the country's split. The, the, we're, we're lucky, and that is anchored deeply, that those of us who think this way, which is way over 100 million of the adults in the country, it's over half, we are the majority, we're the wealth creators, but we are not organized effectively politically because we haven't been obsessed with that for our whole lives. Uh, if you're watching the Bill Walton Show, I'm here with Eric O'Keefe and Mark Meckler, and we're talking about, unfortunately, what looks like a so far successful long march through our institutions by the uh, 
the cultural Marxist. I don't like that sentence, but that seems to be where we are. So this is this is a strange thing to fight, though, because it's not like, you know, we talk the London elite. Well, the London elite were they were three thousand miles away, and yeah. the Civil War was fought over different issues, obviously. But those were the North and the South. You could kind of divide. Now you look at a map of the country, and if you look at the map and who voted for Trump in 2020, the map's red. Yeah. By ge geographically, except for those little blue dots, New York, you know, Chicago, San Francisco, you know, you can pick the you can pick the pick the towns. So we're all it's there's there, there's an urban elite. Yes. That's all part of what we're talking about. Yeah. And then there's sort of the rest of the country. Yes. yes. And the reason I want to talk with you guys, you've been grassroots activists forever. And you also have a good sense of how to, how to bring about change. And I think all of us want to bring about change in a way that's, uh, that's that, you know, I, I, I'm not particularly interested in taking to the streets. I don't think that's a good line of action. So how do we bring about change? Bill, Mark has, the, we're the most amazing political organization I've ever seen. And Mark, Mark has put it together and given tools and given training. But, he, but they are energized and inspired frankly, by the uh, offenses. This of, is Citizens for Self-Governance? Yeah, I mean, or, that's the parent organization. What most people would know is Convention of States. Yeah. And so the Convention of States project is what I run. That's sort of the forward-facing arm of this. Right. And it's organized around an effort to use Article 5 of the Constitution to call a Convention of States to propose amendments to restrain the federal government. And this is something we've never done in the history of this country. It's there in the Constitution. It was sort of put, it was put there by the founders intentionally for this time. We know exactly why it was put there, because Colonel George Mason stood up in convention September 15, 1787. He's from Virginia. He's the, he talks the second most of anybody at convention. Very influential guy. He brought the Virginia plan, which becomes the basis for the Constitution. Well, he was an anti-federalist. He was an anti-federalist. So he knew, right? By the way, anti-federalists are the people who wanted to preserve most of the power in the states. Yeah, they were right. And not in the federal it government. It turns out they were right. They were, they were absolutely right. <laughs> exactly. So he didn't, he didn't sign, right? He was the guy that wouldn't sign the Constitution at the end of the convention. But he stands up, and you know, I imagine when he stood up, there's two days left in convention. I imagine he stands up and everybody thinks, oh, my God, here comes Mason again, right? I've <laughs> <laughs> heard enough from him. And he said something really wise. He said, we've made a mistake. And the mistake is we gave the power to Congress to propose amendments if they think they're necessary, but we didn't give the same power to the states, the people acting through the states. And he asked a question. He said, are we so naive? We believe that a federal government that becomes a tyranny will ever propose amendments to restrain its own tyranny. I think that's sort of a, everybody laughed. Usually when I say that in a big public meeting, people laugh because no tyrants ever restrain themselves. And we know pretty much they did laugh because Madison's notes reflect, they say nincom, two Latin words, no comment. Not one person debated this. There's no fight about it. And it's unanimously put in the Constitution to give us this power. You're trained as a lawyer. Yes. The thing I was, I've worried about having a new constitutional convention is that, yes, we come in with the things we want to fix. But then all the people we've been talking about, the cultural Marxists, are going to see this as an opportunity to, to blow up pieces that they don't like. Yeah. How, how does this end up not being a, a, you know, mud wrestling? So... I would say first, rely on the founders because they were masters of structure. I mean, this is the thing they understood two things better than anybody I've ever seen in history, human nature and structure. And they studied these things extensively, all of them. That's why we got the structure we got. So they set this thing up so that it was intended to be foolproof, ego-proof, tyrant-proof. They set such high bars, it takes 34 states to agree what the subject matter is. So that's two-thirds of states. That's the highest bar in our entire system of governance other than Anything that comes out of convention is just a suggestion. The, the convention itself has no power. It goes out to the states, it has to be ratified by 38 states. So the bar is so high, you have to have the mainstream of public opinion with you, three quarters of states to agree on something to get an amendment to the Constitution. And, and these delegates, Bill, are selected with a process set up by each state legislature. So it's not just everybody who's interested, let's get, get all together. The state legislatures most of which actually are patriotic and representative of the country, they're the ones who pick the delegates. Well, you said 
more than half of American adults were were on a, on the side of freedom, as I would call it, as opposed to coercion. Uh, how does that line up in the state legislatures? I mean, one we talk about the overreaching federal government, yep. but there's been a lot of good things happening at the state levels, and you know, Republican governors and. So how, today, how, thirty-one. How, the, how does this? How, how do the, if we count the votes? How does this? Thirty-one uh, states have both houses controlled by Republicans today. Thirty-one. Thirty-one states, and that's been climbing. Okay. The only flip in the last cycle, from a legislature perspective, New Hampshire went both houses from blue to red. We have only one split state today. That's Minnesota as a split state. I think we're and we're working on flipping that back. I think. We have a chance of flipping Virginia partially this cycle. I'm hopeful on the House of Delegates there. You know, Virginia was a red state just a couple of cycles ago. It'll take two cycles to flip the House and Senate there, but I think we're on the way. I think over 100 and, uh, at least 125 seats flipped from Democrat to Republican in the last cycle. Over 1,200 seats have gone Democrat to Republican since 2010. So the trend in the states is all in the proper direction, in, in the and, direction of liberty. And Mark correctly spoke of structure. And one thing easy to forget in, with our big centralized government, the federal government is a creation of the state governments, which were the independent states. They were, they were independent states that created the federal government. And they reserved. It's not a really a grant of power in the Constitution. They reserved to the, the states creating it, reserved to themselves the right to revisit it. So the states have that right to revisit it. And in such a convention, each state is a state. And you spoke of the urban concentration. There's a concentration of this woke leftism in the cities that are the culture creators and that look down on the rest of the country. They're very concentrated. This is a huge political advantage in the structure of the Constitution because North Dakota and South Dakota offset California and New York in a convention. Yeah. One vote per state. One vote per okay. state. Yeah, so the urban areas get no advantage. And, and one last thing I would add about this idea, and what you're talking about is something called the runaway convention, is what people worry about. So we talk about yeah. the left basically taking control, running away with the convention. There's, when I look at pol any political issue, like I'm not an expert on everything. I can only be an expert on a few things. This is one thing I am an expert on. I rely on experts. I look at people who I respect and trust. And so if you look at this issue and how it divides up among the, American experts on politics, every single person on the right that you would know, nationally known names in America who's weighed in on this issue, who's weighed in in favor and against the runaway convention, and every leftist group in America, by the way, has signed a press release against it, led by Common Cause, Center on well, Budget and Policy well, Priorities. Why would they care? Woodrow Wilson thought the Constitution was a useless piece of paper and, you know, archaic and was holding us back from yeah. what he called uh, progress. Because... By the way, Woodrow Wilson was one serious racist. Oh, caramel, yeah. caramel, they, worst president probably in American history. Well, no, no, no. Who, who are you going to say? Joe. I would say a Colonel. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, fair. But you're right. Woodrow Wilson did start everything. Yeah. Joe's the beneficiary of Woodrow yes. Wilson. But yeah, it's yeah. Well, the <laughs> the. Uh, um, yeah, no, I lost that thought. I would say the reason that they, the reason that they care, Bill, is because. This is a mechanism that was given to us to restore okay. constitutional boundaries, well, and they don't like it. Oh, here's that. what I was going to say. They don't need it. They never need to amend by the amendment process ever again because the Congress passes what they want, the garbage they want, and the courts often let it slide. So they're the side that, they, that doesn't need amendments. They don't use amendments. They just change the, they change the Constitution by either the court or the Congress. So they don't want the process used. They don't need it. Well, how do we put that genie back in the bottle? Well, only the, the way, look, if the, the, here's something I learned from Sam Adams, a fundamental great operating principle he had, which is we, we, the tyrannies want dispersed individuals to rule who cannot organize. So a chess club in Hitler's Germany had to have national approval. In the Soviet Union, same way, no organizing. The Chinese Communist Party. Well, that's true in China right now. Right. right. They, they crushed Falun Gong. Falun Gong. Had, had no right. political principles, right? So we cannot be that. We cannot be dispersed 350 million people talking or complaining or throwing our shoes at the television. So what do we do? What Sam Adams did then, use the, the biggest political platform available to you. And that used to be the colonial legislatures until the royal governor shut them down. And then he went to the Boston town meeting. 
He never went solo. It was never Sam Adams says this. The Boston Town Meeting passed a resolution, sent it around to other towns, and they would change a few words and write a similar patriotic resolution, and it would come to Boston, and Sam Adams would say, look at this brilliant resolution from Connecticut. So like them, we must organize locally and engage locally, and that might mean school board, state legislature. One of the things I love about the convention is of state's application is we ask people to engage with the state legislator to rescue the republic. So you talked, we talked about this before. I mean, one big takeaway you think we ought to focus on is local solutions, local action. Absolutely. Small yeah. groups, people. people engage, engage locally. To, How about taking control of a school board or two? It, it's, a, it's the best thing going on in yeah. our system today. Uh, you're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with uh, Mark Meckler and Eric O'Keefe, and we're talking about um, the uh, lines of action to preserve our liberty, and we're talking about possibly a convention for the states as one way to bring that about. Guys, one of the things I worry about, though, is our ability to communicate with each other, because it seems like what's happened is that we've got this ratcheting effect with the social media companies, and you've been right in the middle of that with yeah. Parler. And so there are these issues all of a sudden that you don't get to talk about. You don't get to talk about ivermectin, just to pick an example. You don't get to talk about masks. And it's focused largely on on the uh, the vaccine, the vaccine mandates and, and that. But increasingly, it's going to other areas of speech as election well. Election integrity is another one. Not election, you're not allowed to talk about elect, right. whether elections are fair or not. Right. So... I'm throwing that into the middle. Yeah, look, of the, uh, having come through the parlor mess, I'm I'm really worried about that. And what happened to parlor is, I think it's much more serious than most people understand. When when parlor got taken down, what people know is that Amazon Web Services shut off their servers and shut them down, and that's bad. It's real bad. I, that's it was a breach of contract. They didn't really care. You know, Amazon spends over a billion dollars a year in, in legal fees. They don't care about if parlor was going to sue them, but they not only got taken down there, all the ancillary services that are required to be alive on the web, to have a presence on the web, disappeared as well. A real simple one that most people will understand. You know, if you if you want a website, you go to GoDaddy or some some mm-hmm. uh, provider like that, and you get your website name and you register it, and it's twelve bucks a month or whatever it costs, or twelve bucks a year. Well, they lost that. They lost their domain name service. The company canceled them. And so we had to go out and we had to find another domain name host there. Google canceled them. Uh, I, think it was, I think it was Go. No, this was GoDaddy. So there's, well, who there's two pieces. Who controls GoDaddy? Aren't, doesn't, no, they're an independent company. Okay. Right? And so that's called a domain name server, DNS, right? And so uh, they host the name. And the name points the traffic at your servers. So if the person who hosts the name says, we're not hosting your name anymore, even if your servers are up and running, you type in parlor.com and it doesn't come up. And so the, you lo- they lost the technical infrastructure. The servers get shut down. The domain name hosting gets shut down. So even if you had the servers, nothing points at the servers anymore when you go search it. And there are many, many more layers, another five, 10 layers below that of technical infrastructure that's required to exist at any sort of scale on the web. And virtually all of those got pulled from Parler. They got, you know, in, in dystopian parlance, they got unpersoned. Mm-hmm. They got wiped out of existence uh, banking relationships were fractured. Merchant processing relationships were fractured. So all of these things had to be rebuilt. It's not a simple thing. It's not just go get a new server and get rehosted. So I think it showed the fragility of the system. And I, I would say this is a warning to anybody who runs a conservative organization, a libertarian organization, and, and Bill, it's much broader than this. And this is the part that really worries me. What if you're none of those things? But what if you're known conservative and you just run a business? You're an, you're an investor and you run an investing business or you, you run a bank or you run a construction company. They can take all of that stuff away from you as well. And you're probably, I don't mean you personally, but you run a construction company, big national presence, you're hosted on Amazon Web Services and they find out, well, the CEO gives money to conservative causes. We don't think he should be able to speak anymore. We don't think he should be able to do business. So they have the power to wipe all of that out. I think it's really important. It's something I'm working on. We need an entire infrastructure for people who believe in free speech. And so I say that the great decoupling is taking place. That decoupling is a commercial decoupling in the United States of America. How do you define the two sides? I mean, I define it as enemies, you know, the coercionist people versus the lovers of liberty. But there are other ways to draw a dichotomy. I mean, what do you, 
How would you how would you define? And we've been working on that. If we're playing skins and shirts, how do we decide? Which team are we on? Yeah, with uh, Scott Rasmussen is working with us on that, and uh, we don't have a simple answer, but we're trying to cut that line. One, there's there are some things catch a lot of it. Actually, just simply urban and non-urban captures a huge amount of it. Um, We've also found that uh, Cotevilla was really good on that. Yeah, we, we've also we, we've had him on here. He was great. Oh yeah, no, no offense to anyone with a PhD, but having a PhD is a highly likely marker of being woke. You know, posturing on the woke left, and uh, being a being a, a working guy who gets his hands dirty is highly associated with being a pro-American. But I I don't think there's there's a simple thing on it. But it's definitely captures it's people who who love America, the distinctly American things, which is a majority in the country, are our folks. This, this elite does not like America. They don't like it. You know, they want to be like, they want to be like they think the rest of the world is, which they don't even know how it is, but they think they want to be like that. We're going out really well in Europe, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, it's... One reason they're not too hard on China is they're jealous of the Chinese Communist Party. Our ruling elite is jealous of that citizen control they have, and they're imitating it. It's a straight up, the whole uh, lockdown, shutdown stuff over COVID was an imitation of the supposedly successful job that the Chinese did on uh, protecting their people from their virus created in their lab and flown around the world after they cut off flights, intra-China flight from Wuhan. They sent it around the world. So they're, but you know, because they have the cultural high posts, those the the anti-American left is able to trick many people into thinking they're on that side. They do that largely by saying we hate we hate you poor you know we hate the poor we hate you. So spin. Really, I think the woke left has about ten percent of people who are pretty much with them, but they are able to manipulate their way into making it close elections. There's another interesting way to slice it nowadays that I think is important because I think there are. Quite a few people on the left now that are shaking their heads at what's going on and, and they're not necessarily fully woke and they're not with all this stuff and so i think if you look at the people who, who believe in free speech and there are people who are openly anti-free speech now and there's some really interesting thinkers barry weiss uh, among them and you know she's pulled away from the new york times she's doing her own thing on substack barry weiss was editor of the new york times and she left the times because yeah. you felt like they were they were controlling, speech. right, absolutely okay. controlling speech. And so, and, you know, she did a very interesting interview last weekend with Ben Shapiro. And the most fascinating thing about the interview is they don't agree on almost anything, <laughs> literally. I mean, she's, she is of the left. Does she talk fast enough? To no, not even close. <laughs> you have to slow him down, maybe speed her up a little bit. But I think it's interesting. The only thing they agree on, they're both Zionists. Right? Okay. But other than that, they don't agree on anything except this I'm one I'm a Zionist thing. too. So. Yeah. They believe in free speech. Yeah. And so I think that's, that is a fundamental alignment that's really important in America today. I don't, if you, if you believe in woke stuff, whatever, I can sit down and have a conversation with you. We can debate unless you believe I shouldn't be able to say the things that I'm saying. Yeah, the real definition, I think, is, is uh, we, we don't want to shut down anybody. So we do not insist on on deference and, and having our political adversaries say they admire us and they're going to do what we say. They want from us, they want to us to either shut up or to profess agreement with them. That's, it, it's, that's what they want. And that's just, they're not going to get it. They're not going to get it. They're not going to be happy. They can't have that. But that's what they want. Yeah, I would agree with that. And so that's why I think this is a fundamental dividing line. I do talk to people on the left who... They're shaking their heads. They're trying to figure out where their home is right now. They're not Republicans. They're not ever going to be conservatives, but they're free speech advocates. And they are currently hated by the left. They're some of the most hated by the left. You know, and, or someone who saw this coming is the late Patrick Cadell, who was a young pollster for Jimmy Carter long ago and remained a liberal Democrat his whole life. We spent time with him at the end. He was a patriot. He was a con, and there, there, there are many liberal America lovers, right? They, they've been a lot of them are silenced because they might lose their post, right, right. their job. But Cadell, and Cadell was worried. He told me he was helping us out in Wisconsin in the fights, and he said, "You know, if people found out I was doing this, I would lose my 
reputation. So, uh, but Cadell said, you know, this is a time when the Hamiltons and the Jeffersons have to work together. The Hamiltons and Jeffersons have to work together. After we fight, after we fight this off, this dangerous left, then we're going to fight each other, which is what Hamilton and Jefferson, you know, right. were bitter enemies. Um, and that we're at that kind of time. Uh, you're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Eric O'Keefe and Mark Meckler, and we're talking about how to define the problem as to who, who's on which side of the argument, and what are the, how do, what are they, what are their characteristics, and most importantly, how do we bring this back together? You know, lines of action. Uh, what what one of the really sinister pieces of Merrick Garland coming out with that memo he came out with recently. It was a one-page memo, and it basically instructed the federal agencies to work with state and local people to ensure that, uh, state and local law enforcement to ensure that school boards were protected from violence by parents. In the first place, there's, I don't think there's a single shred of incident that involved violence when the, when the people are trying to talk to their school boards about what's being taught. But the thing that struck me that really, as you look into this, it was instigated. It was instigated by the National Association of School Boards. Absolutely. It was instigated by the Biden White House, by the Democrat operatives. And they're terrified. Talk about your 10%. They're terrified that these issues that they're pushing now um, are going to get them clobbered in 2022. And somebody... I. As I understand it, the, one of the issues was we can't get let parents organize the way that the Tea Party organized back in 2010 because this CRT is going to be much, much more more um, um, a, a motivator than than anything was back then. So we got to put it. We got to chill this thing. We got to kill it in the cradle so it doesn't become an issue in 2022. It's a great insight, and one of the tough things about the Tea Party is your, the, the target. What was the target? It was to get, it was to get Congress behaving. Well, Congress was, you know, having a pretty good time. So, we, <laughs> there's about fifteen thousand school boards in the country. Okay. Everybody has a school board near them, and someone who gets almost no attention and probably isn't paid is on the school board, and and uh, a lot of them don't know their authority, which tends to be pretty extensive. But they're just there; they've been coasting. It's a great place to engage, and, and uh, it, you're right that it's a sign of the fear of the left. They're, they're, they're afraid, so they're, it's, it's a horrible attempt to silence. And implied in that memo from Garland, as well as the school board's memo, was that a strongly spoken speech is dangerous and is a threat. It wasn't the, the, it, impl- it took this left thing and implied exactly. that speech can be violence. Exactly. So an upset parent is a danger. We have the FBI looking at that, and they're not looking... No, they're not looking at, you know, jihadists or criminals coming across the border. No, they're looking at our moms that are going to school board meetings. What a disgrace. And, uh, but this is, this is also an opportunity. But, but you went through this in Wisconsin, and I want to tell that story. But the thing that they're doing here is the FBI, the Fed, there's no federal jurisdiction here. There's nothing no. they can do. So what the memo says is we want to work with local authorities and, and encourage them to use the resources of the FBI to monitor parents. You have a little experience with that, maybe, Eric? Well, uh, yeah, they, uh, the FBI was involved in the John Doe investigation. They have extensive... Quickly, John Doe investigation okay. was what? what? In Wisconsin, when Scott Walker proposed reforms which dramatically reduced the power of public employee unions yeah. and increased the influence of school boards and the legislature and voters because... The unions had a tremendous amount of muscle. What he did, this is what he did that was so awful. They had to pay a portion of their retirement money and a portion of their health care, and less than the average in the private sector. And this is the one the union leadership, but not the union members, were really upset about. They, it limited uh, their negotiating latitude. They couldn't negotiate over things like seniority. So in school districts, seniority was no longer a protection. That's what they really hated. So one of the big values the union thought it offered. Walker took those away. The legislature passed it. And the unions went ballistic. This was covered nationally in 2011 with truly massive protests in Madison. 80,000 people marching around the Capitol. And in a time of no other elections, it was very high profile. They ran recalls against uh, state senators. We have recall against Walker. 
my group, Wisconsin Club for Growth, was the primary anchor defender of the senators who were being attacked. I raised money nationally through our network. Lots of people around the country wanted to help Walker. We won the elections, so shortly after Walker won his recall, and we had sustained all of this, shocking them, by the way. They spent $40 million trying to undo that, $40 million the left spent, and we counted it with about the same amount over two years. And we thought we won. It's over. I made a huge mistake. Mark and I have been talking. It's never over with the left. It's never over. So we relaxed a bit, and then they had started. The administrative state collaborated with the prosecutor. They raided four family homes at 6 a.m. In the, with children at home. Welcome. In, including yours. No, mine was on a list to be raided, and they didn't trust the sheriff, who's a Republican, to cooperate. So I got a subpoena and a gag order in order not to talk to anybody about it. What year was this? 2013, October 3rd. Okay, so, yeah. And uh, it was, and you know, we we had just started Convention of States, and I got pulled off of that. But uh, just to make a long story short, I spent the next two and a half years full-time raising money, lining up lawyers for my whole team. Uh, My average, the average combined legal bills that I was covering for two years was $350,000 a month. Wow. Okay, so we had lawyers from around the country because how many? Because so many people needed separate representation. But this is a this has a good element and a bad element. The good element is uh, the support we got from people who wanted to help those who were being attacked. Tremendous help. All I got all those legal bills paid by patriots around the country. The Wall Street Journal ran 27 different editorials over the period of three years, covering this in a great way. Huge help. Talk radio from. And nationally, Hannity and Limbaugh mentioned it. Fox News was good on it. Our talk radio in-state was terrific on it. So, and I sued. I, I defied the gag order. Um, and, and we beat them in court with a fabulous decision from our state Supreme Court, which said that the, the investigation was conducted without foundation in reason or law. Now, here's the bad part. None of the perpetrators have been punished. Okay, we rewrote the laws, we cleaned up the laws, but none of the perps have been punished. Uh, I I sued them personally and uh, appealed to SCOTUS, Supreme Court of the United States. Cert was denied there. And also, the the newspapers were against us the whole way before, during, and after, the in-state print and the New York Times. And um, the FBI was involved. And Senator Ron Johnson, great senator from Wisconsin, wrote a detailed letter to Christopher Wray while chairing the Oversight Committee, asking him who asked for the files, why do you have the files, how many do you have, four-and-a-half-page letter, terrific letter. He got a blow-off from them. They stonewalled, they blew it off. So I asked for my file, and and who asked for it, why do they have it, and I got a, uh, they took them a year to send me one page, which was one newspaper clipping, and then to check a bunch of boxes on why they couldn't answer the other questions. So what we learned then, this is a preview, right? We learned that the way they think in the administrative state and and the left is it's their government, and if they don't like what the voters do, they will use the power of their government to overturn the election. It was a preview of what we saw nationally. They tried to get... Walker thrown out of office and reverse his policies because they couldn't win at the ballot box. Wow. Yeah, we went through the same thing essentially with the Tea Party movement. 2010, you get the 2010 elections. Post-2010, they start, they sick the IRS on all these Tea Party groups that are seeking nonprofit status. The abuse is incredible. They're just applying, filling out simple forms, applying to be... Well, this is the IRS. Yeah. Yeah. So they do. This, this, this is the administrative <coughs> state. So this, this is simultaneous. This is yeah. under Obama. This is the administrative state. And by the way, Lois Lerner was friends with the chief enemy I had in Wisconsin, Kevin Kennedy. They were friends. We exposed that through our litigation. The, the, the administrative state guys in Wisconsin asked the IRS to go after us. Lois Lerner, who Mark's group ran the litigation, deposed her. That deposition of eight hours has been sealed these four years, even from us, the, the plaintiffs. plaintiffs. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I've got about 5,300 other things I want to talk about. <laughs> Let's here. go. We've we got we to wrap it up at, at some point. But I, I, one thing I wanted to get into before we get out of this one, and then we've got to come back and yeah. talk some more, administrative state. Now, you started out, and I was a big fan of this, term limits. 
only let the congressman be in there four years, eight years, ten years, whatever. But you know, the problem is they get they go to Washington, they become creatures of the swamp, and they're the problem. Well, we we now know it's much worse than that. Yes, it's it's not the people who get elected to Congress. It's the administrative state. It's the permanent ruling class we've got there. And with the federal laws that allow you don't allow you to change anybody, and 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 the way, you know, they take political appointees and then make them permanent employees of the of a department. Right. Justice Department's Exhibit A. I mean, it's filled with all sorts of people that Clinton put in, then Obama, and now Biden has got that same crew. They're, those are not political appointees, not congressmen. It's the permanent ruling class, and they don't like us. Right. You know, I think there are multiple ways to deal with it. The, the tools actually exist. So one of my great frustrations is that the tools exist in the administrations that come and go don't use the tools. So, and, and some of this might sound extreme, but I think it's the only way you fix an extreme problem. One example is uh, that you could actually take these agencies and you could move them somewhere in the country that will not be friendly and move them to Nebraska, literally. And, and the, the administration has the authority to do this. Move them to Christie Nome State. Yeah, there you go. So move them to South Dakota, right? And and put them there. And then what you do is this there's actually a reason for termination, failure to show up for work. You can terminate a government employee. Most of these folks are inside the Beltway folks. They like it here. They don't want to leave the Beltway. And so you tell them you're gonna you're gonna be in uh, Pierce, South Dakota in the winter and they won't go. Here's another option. So you can actually do that. The authority you, you have to move to America in order to work here. Exactly. So here, here's a, I'm going to give you another option. You can take these employees. Can I live in one of those red red spots on the on the map? Yep. You can tell these employees, look, we're going to move you to a new office building, and it sounds facetious. I mean, this for really move you to a new office building. The new office building has no phones in it. It has no internet access to it. And you can go sit there every day, all day. You have no more authority. You don't do anything. And it would be worth the, the literally several billion dollars to pay yeah. these employees to just sit there. It, it, and then you put... It, 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 it's a wonderful idea, but don't we need a take-no-prisoners president? And Congress. I mean, one of the big problems that we have is that Congress has no cojones. And Let's talk about that, yeah. because the Congress over the years is... I don't remember the quite technical word for it, but they've delegated all their authority... Yeah, to the that's to the, the these to administrative the, to the agencies, agencies. unconstitutionally, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And so the the agencies, there's no authority <clears throat> in the Constitution to delegate all this rulemaking. It's it's the illegal administrative. So let's dream. Let's dream. We had a, we've got a take no prisoners right. president, right. and we've got a sweep of the House yep. and the Senate. And we got people. They're strength in numbers. They're not you know they're not a slender majority. They've got a chance to actually do something big. You'd move it all out of D.C. Okay, that's one, but I'm going to back <laughs> down your dream. We don't have to dream that big. Okay. Okay. So I do believe, based on current trajectory, unless the Republicans screw it up, which they're entirely capable of doing, I think we're going to take the They have a the track record. Yeah, we'll take the, the majority. track record. I think we're going to take the majority in the House, maybe even in the Senate. So let's say we just get the House. Small Dream small. We get the okay. House. The House controls all spending. All spending. So in... They can literally just say, yeah, we're not funding any of this stuff anymore. They can, they can defund any line item, essentially, that they want to. They, that is constitutional. They have the power of the purse. All spending initiates in the House. And so, again, fantasy, right? I don't think they have the spine to do this, but they can do this. I th you know, I had a lot of fun over the years in politics picking on Congress, and it's a long-standing tradition in America. Mark Twain did it. Um, but... Um, but the Congress will be no stronger, no more assertive on behalf of our liberty than they are required to be by their constituents. Yes. So the outside organizing and things caused by your show and the activities that we're all engaged in, those have to develop the program, show that the support is there, and, and make it politically rewarding. So we don't need a bunch of suicidal heroes. We need people who are responsive to what they're being pushed into doing. So it's really on us outside to make this the attractive way for Congress to behave, don't you think, Mike? I, I totally agree with that. I mean, we make them heroes for doing the right thing and heels for doing the so wrong thing. So it gets back to both of what you're doing. It's organizing at a local level to yep. put together our voice and, 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 and reach them. Of course, it, it, that brings me to the thing I worry about is our ability to speak. I feel like if 
eventually we're going to be using smoke signals to, to try to reach the, out to each other. Mark, Mark is in touch with people doing the workarounds, and I'm sure there are entrepreneurs we don't know about. This is a great business opportunity to provide workarounds so people to, can communicate. To work right? around Amazon, to work around Google, work you know, work without Facebook. They're being developed, they're they're winning political opportunities, not because of the money in politics, but because so many patriotic businessmen actually have, as Mark said, a business risk. So they need to be shown a way to not be vulnerable to the whim of a woke corporation cutting off their digital. Everybody needs digital communication today. Mm-hmm. So I'm just predicting that the market is going to respond that we don't have to fix that. But we, you guys will be on top of it. When it happens, you'll be able to point people, look, now we have a company doing this, we have a company doing that. And there are, Mark has been in touch because, through his parlor work with the cutting edge of all these fronts. And it, we're not the only ones worrying about that. Guys, we got to stop here. I can't believe. We're just getting started. We got, I got all these other pages of notes <laughs> here that we, uh, we're just getting started. Let's let's continue next time soon. Absolutely. You guys get back into town. We'll we'll go to part two, and then after that, part three, and we're take back the country. Sounds good. Mark Meckler, Eric O'Keefe, uh, you've been watching the Bill Walton Show. Uh, we're found on all the major podcast platforms most of the time, unless we say things that our platform companies don't approve of. But I think uh, hopefully they'll approve of this. A lot of smart things. Eric and Mark, uh, come back. Thanks for Thank you. Us. Okay, great. Thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, We'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.